welcome to First Cope, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Achiveste, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. This week on First Cope, we have Amanda Pingbodibakia. Amanda is a multidisciplinary artist based in Brooklyn, New York. She uses interactive installation, augmented reality, and biodesign to create large-scale exhibitions that connect science and society. She recently had a solo exhibition, Connective Tissue, at the Majori Barrick Museum of Art in Nevada, and is currently working on a multi-city public art series called Findings, celebrating women and science. I spoke with Amanda about her recent exhibition, her advice for doing community-based art, and how she transitioned to being a full-time artist. Here's our conversation. I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome to First Co. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Amanda Pingbodibakia. Just repeat that last name. It's Pingbodibakia. I'm Thai, so that's why I have a 17-letter-long last name. I am a multidisciplinary artist. I know folks call themselves, you know, many different things these days, like transdisciplinary, or there's so many ways to say it. But I do a lot of things and a lot of uh, mediums. And a lot of my work sits at the intersection of science and technology and design and art and feminism. Yay. Yay. I've been seeing your projects and just I've been really blown away by the work you've been doing and not just the actual finished product of it, but I think the process that you go through with all of your projects and how different but also very similar they are. And as an artist myself, I'm just fascinated how you can do so many different types of projects in different places with different people. And I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about how did last year happen and what do you think you had set as a foundation for all of those projects Mm -hmm. to happen? And also looking back and especially in the time we are now, how do you want to move forward with your work? That is a multifaceted question. I'll try to tackle the first piece. So how how did things ladder up for my projects last year to happen? I think everything that you do ladders on itself and just kind of builds. So for me, I'm I'm just a very open person uh, in terms of opportunities and people. Interestingly enough, one of my biggest exhibitions, so a solo exhibition that covered 4,800 square feet, it was like 15 murals and 10 new interactive works. That actually happened because in 2017, I did a project called Beyond Curie. Mm-hmm. And it's a portrait series featuring these collaged imagery just like bright, colorful, scientific images of inspiring women in STEM to kind of honor their legacy and show young women of color that they belong in the science space. And I'm a big believer in using art to move people to action Mm -hmm. or to help people reconsider or rethink preconceived notions. I created this project. It was uh, actually just like a website that I did. It was completely digital. I put it out there. was lucky enough that Fast Company covered it and it just got a lot of reach. And was this a personal project that you yeah, just This did? was like, yeah. like not for anybody. It was a personal project. I just really believed in it. It was after the 2016 election and I was like, I got to do something, but what can I do that utilizes my skills and my background and sort of my perspective in a unique way? So that's kind of what I settled on. And it's still ongoing, which I'm very happy about. But yeah, so this student group at the University of Las Vegas contacted me and they asked me to come out and speak to them about my kind of crazy, windy background from neuroscience into art and kind of how I blend the two and continue to work in both spaces without 
taking away from either one. I went out there and it was lovely to meet these inspiring young women. And I was just so impressed with everything that they put together. So I, I was expecting to, to go into a classroom and be like, hey, you know, this is what I do. Let me just show some slides. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for having me. Let's kind of have a round table. But they actually, you know, they booked out the museum that I ended up exhibiting in. And I met the executive director who came to the talk and like so many people came and I was just very impressed by the event that they put together and just like the thought and the care that, and, and really the vision that they had for jumpstarting this club called Scientistas that they had established a chapter for. And yeah, uh, that's kind of how that first connection was made. And, you know, nothing really happened or for some time, which is often kind of how things go. But um, when I took over the East Wing of the Museum of Natural Sciences with the Beyond Curie series that had grown to, I think, 35 or 40 portraits of women in STEM, and then now had like an AR component that allowed you to see kind of animations on top. The executive director reached back out and she was like, hey, have you ever thought of perhaps exhibiting with us? And I was like, no, but yes, I would love to do that. So it went from, you know, just sort of like crickets and nothing to, you know, a potential opportunity. And even then things weren't set in stone, but I was out in Vegas for a wedding, a friend's wedding. And I decided to just pop in and see the space and say hello and, you know, see if we could talk logistics. Cause at that point still nothing was kind of set in stone. Huh. But then I sort of started just, you know, ideating on the spot. And uh, I think she was very moved by it. But even then I was, I was still supposed to share the space with someone else. But then two or three months later, she calls me and says, oh, actually, we had to drop the other artist. Would you be okay doing a solo show? And more than that, would you be okay moving your timeline up by a year? So I was actually supposed to do that this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, I'm slightly deranged when I kind of lock on to a creative project. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. I can do it. <laughs> so kind of that's, that's sort of how it happened. But I, I feel that a, a lot of my projects kind of stem from this sort of like chaotic mix of things where I'm not really sure what's going to happen. And I sort of love that about my practice. And I think that's why you kind of see lots of permutations of things in lots of different spaces, because you just never know when an opportunity could crop up or you could create one for yourself. Back to your earlier question about, you know, was Beyond Curie a uh, personal project? Yeah, it absolutely was. And I'm a big believer in how personal projects or, you know, work that you believe in, whether or not it was commissioned or someone asked you to do it, you should still do it because it's a, it's a part of yourself that you want to put out into the world or some idea that you believe is important. And I think that that passion, that fire, that love comes through for folks who see it and you just never know who might see your work. That's such great advice, especially in this uncertain time. Um, yeah. I keep hearing like, here are all these things that you could do with your time. And I think it's a little bit overwhelming, particularly it for is. creatives of like, I need Absolutely. to come up with this project, but maybe if we just focused on the things that are interesting to us, 
and then did them <laughs> instead of like right. being distracted by a lot of things. There's how do you, I guess, oscillate between the, the curiosity and then the focus of like, I'm going to do this project and I'm going to see it through. That's a great question. I think last year was definitely an execution year. So it was that huge project in conjunction with community of microbes um, mm -hmm. at the Cooper Union and just balancing the two, just like the, the creative and the tech pieces of all of them. It was just a lot because like running parallel tracks on prototyping the mm -hmm. tech and also kind of um, iterating on the design and making sure we tested so that a, it would work, but it would still look nice and could withstand children just like, ah! um, kind of trying to tear them apart was definitely a challenge. So I don't think I did that much experimentation to say last year. I think within the scope of a project, I certainly still try to kind of expand what I am trying to do and kind of hone back in once I do some exploration. But I think certainly this year, well, in, in part because we're all quarantined, I've, I've had a little bit more time to kind of just truly experiment, experiment without the kind of pressure to create something that's good. I think that's uh, something that we all struggle with as creatives. It's like, I, I think sometimes when there's too much pressure to create something that is good, whatever good means, visually pleasing, impactful, whatever it is, however you define good, it kind of limits your exploration. Mm -hmm. So there's just lots of failed things sitting around my apartment right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's sort of like where you find the seeds of inspiration for like the next thing that you might do. And it's like this cross fermentation of uh, different techniques, maybe new ones that you learn kind of merged with old ones that kind of create something very interesting. I think what's really interesting what you said is that you find ways to st still experiment within a project. I think that's important, mostly because I try to, I'm, I guess I'm very grateful to be able to take projects that are very open and to work with people who value my artistic vision and my strategic vision for things. And I think that in part comes from the way I often work with folks. You know, obviously I'll apply to things and you know, we send a thousand arrows out and see what comes back and whatever comes back, cool. I think I've just gotten into the practice of very much creating opportunities for myself, mostly because I'm kind of a weird hybrid odd bird kind of creative and that I have this weird background in neuroscience, you know, I worked in technology, it's a huge part of my work, but I, I'm not really exactly part of like the art and tech movement. What I do is like, a little bit more community based as well. So there are like lots of different pieces. And oftentimes, as creatives, we're told, you know, focus on one so that that can be your thing. And that that can be very marketable for you. But I've actually found at least for myself personally, kind of doing lots of work in lots of different spaces has actually kind of netted me the most opportunities and the, and mm -hmm. the most rewarding ones as well. The first time I started creating work in this space where there wasn't anything was when I did something called the TED residency. And even then, I, I don't think I had kind of emerged into my full potential of experimentation and kind of really standing behind my work. It was still very much trying to foster creativity and collaboration between artists and scientists, like trying to do it for others. I was still creating, creative directing the whole thing and kind of putting up these exhibitions, but 
honestly, I think I was a little scared to kind of uh, do it myself or kind of like put my full weight behind my artistic vision. But, you know, since then, obviously, I, I've done a lot of work in this space and it's been incredibly rewarding to do that. But with regards to public art, the first time I did a mural, I just, it wasn't even like I want to make a mural. That wasn't what I was thinking. I, I had met this woman through Ted, um, who runs a nonprofit in Atlanta, my hometown and where my parents still are, that supports homeless youth through the arts. And I really wanted to kind of encourage the kids in her program to, I guess, develop a vision through doing and kind of give them something tangible to create a bright spot in their city. Because I, I know as, as a child who was bullied a lot, kind of that manifestation of something in your mind to kind of seeing it out in the world mm. is hugely confidence building. So I thought this would be, um, I guess, a, a growth and rewarding exercise for them. I actually didn't know what we were going to make going in, but I ran a bunch of design thinking exercises with them, kind of got them to talk to me, which was hard because, well, <laughs> they're like, who's this strange person? Go away. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of like I've, I've had so many people not give up on me. I certainly didn't want to give up on them. So we got to a point where, you know, we were able to kind of find some common ground. And I love that you can see parts of them in the mural itself. And I think that was my favorite part to kind of get them to express themselves in a way that they could translate up on this big wall. And yeah, that that wall we got, you know, completely by chance. And it just happened to be in such a wonderful spot because our original wall fell through. Wow. So yeah, I was actually in Boston before I was, you know, planning to fly down to Atlanta to kind of do the project. And then I got a call from the group that was kind of procuring walls for us. And they said, Oh, sorry, but your wall fell through. And then they just gave me a list of real estate companies to call. So then I called every single one. And I was like, Hi, so in a week, I, uh, I need a big wall. What do you think? Um, I'm working with this nonprofit, let's not let the kids down. <laughs> um, so fortunately, you know, this wall came through and I didn't even know how big it was. So I had to readjust the design for the wall. And it was like a whole learning experience for everyone. But I think at the end of every big mural, you are exhausted, you are frustrated by the things that went wrong, but ultimately you've created something with an amazing community and you only remember the, most of the good stuff. Do you have any tips for other artists who maybe aren't doing community-based work or aren't incorporating the community in into their project, whether that's a mural or some other type of public right. art project, and how they might get over that hurdle or start learning about the community and actually involving the community in the work? Well, I mean, I think there are many reasons to not, obviously. There's the funding issue, there's the access issue, and there's like, it's just harder to to kind of collaborate with more people and involve more people. And that also means you have more stakeholders and like your original stakeholder might not agree mm -hmm. with, you know, your community stakeholders. But I would say that, you know, it still comes from this idea of what's your vision for how 
public art can serve as a placemaking tool for a community. And, you know, obviously it helps to have a personal connect. But beyond that, I think people are surprised by the number of cold emails that get answered. The power of the cold email is strong, um, <laughs> especially if you lay out why you want to work with this organization and how your art can really become sort of like a, a way to open dialogue. One of the things I'm hearing, and this is finding an organization that you can actually work with, whether it's a community, some kind of point person that can kind of help you connect with a specific community, or are there I other mean, ways? It, like You could be the point person that mm-hmm. connects with a specific community. Mm-hmm. I think it just, it matters what the scope you're envisioning is. So if you want to have like a big paint day, obviously it's helpful to have some, you know, logistical support and community buy-in and support. And it's a bit hard to organize that if you're, you know, just one person. It's certainly doable, but you're also the one who has to paint and like show people, you know, what the design is and how to paint. I think there are many ways, but I think just not underestimating the amount of support that you need on a mural project is crucial or any community-based project. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of the day, it's sort of like when you involve a community, it becomes about them and not about you. And that's why I think a lot of artists don't involve community groups because they just want to put their, you know, personal expression out there. And that is 100% okay and wonderful. And like lots of, you know, sleepy lots have been transformed by that very way of working. But just having going in with the understanding that, you know, even if you want something to be a certain way, you have to listen. And it's not about you anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest hurdle, honestly, is especially if you're working from a perspective of like, I just want to like put my vision out there Mm -hmm. to then shift in your mindset to actually I'm here to listen and I'm here to transmute the spirit of this community into something beautiful and uplifting, that's a whole mind shift. So Mm -hmm. just making sure that you're okay with that. And, you know, sort of like you're committed to that is probably the best advice I can give. How do you feel about work that is particularly in areas that are going through gentrification or have been gentrified, where they are simply an artist's vision on the wall, may or may not been commissioned by a local developer or a business or the business improvement district, but they're clearly not involving or didn't involve the community in any way. Do you think that changes depending on the environment that the piece is in? I think gentrification is going to happen. And because artists are struggling, it's going to be very hard for them to turn down work like that. And especially Mm -hmm. if it's sort of like an opportunity to get their practice off the ground. I don't fault them at all for taking work like that. I think you know, as long as we make a concerted effort to make sure that our work isn't negatively impacting a community, I think that is a good first step. And yeah, I mean, there's nothing better than creating work that's beloved by a community, because they'll fight for that work and, and protect it, even if the building is going to be torn down. So it's sort of like, it's in an artist's best interest to get community buy in, in my opinion, whether or not they actually are involved in the creation of the work. Right. Yeah. Right. But Um, again, that's, that's hard. That takes more work. And I understand if there's, if it's not done. Yeah, no, I think every, every situation is a little bit different. Um, Absolutely. And I definitely think there are instances where someone is using art to kind of trick a community into something, which is terrifying. But I, I think it happens quite often where it's like, now this is a cool hit place to, to be. And we've all like, but you don't know all the things that happened to actually get these apartments up or get like 
this area to feel really cool and nice. And I think I, I very much like struggle with that. Not so much. I mean, I totally agree with you. I want artists to get paid and I particularly want women and people of color who make art to get paid. Absolutely. And I've just like, we're in capitalism. Like I want to make money. I want them to make money. I want us all to be able to make work. I want everyone to win, but that is not possible. Right. Um, And so it's like being conscious of what might, like the history of the place is simply sometimes all you need to do (laughs) to learn what the background is of that project. And I think just simply having conversations with Mm -hmm. um, folks in the community can, you know, even if they don't participate in the creation of the work, at least it informs contextually what you decide to put up there. And, you know, it's not hard to have a conversation or two. It's just about sort of like making the time and kind of putting the effort in to to even try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spending time in the place and talking to people. Pretty, yep. <laughs> pretty basic things. But yeah, I, I really like yeah. that. I, I wanted to learn a bit about how you think about your projects, both as physical things. And also, yeah. <laughs> I feel like everything you do, or at least maybe maybe in the last few years, you have artwork in a physical space, things that can be interacted with by people who come to either see it or walk by it or or whatever. And then this digital experience, um, whether it's literally on top of the work, with the work, or just online, separate from the work. It's really impressive because I think you've really thought through that user experience of sure, the exhibit may end or people might not be able to actually physically go see it anymore, but you can still engage with it online. So can you talk a little bit more about why you do that and how you plan that into your your process? Sure, absolutely. So I think the reason why I do it is because I think everyone should have access to good art and technology has democratized art in a really wonderful way, especially if you put the effort in to do that, to democratize it. And I always do because I know how hard it can be to make it to a certain place. You know, you might not even have the means to get to a certain place. And like, who am I to deprive you of art that could change your life? Mm -hmm. Not to say that like my art will change your life necessarily, but like anyone's art, really. I think more and more institutions and organizations should try to use technology to kind of expand the reach of the work that they show. So I, from the beginning, I'm very like, I'm very intentional Mm -hmm. about how this ecosystem works. I think interactivity is very important to me because oftentimes I'll do user research and ask folks, you know, like when you go to the Met or when you go to a museum, what do you get out of it? And I was actually surprised to learn that most people aren't sure what they're supposed to get out of it. And they are bothered that they can't interact with anything. I mean, museums are changing, so this isn't always the case anymore, but oftentimes people are just sort of like itching to interact because they are inspired. And I think as creatives, as artists, it's it's very nice to be able to design a system where you're supposed to interact. And like through that interaction, you learn something about yourself and about others. Um, I think that's sort of like the most beautiful kind of ecosystem to create where through you know, touching and through sort of like interacting with the work, you gain something like tangible that you can take away with. A lot of the work in my connective tissue exhibition was about what can it be achieved together. So a lot of the work, you know, it just didn't work properly until you got four other people to do it with you. Hmm. Or it just like didn't light up until everyone was sitting down together. And then you got this like, wonderful aura around you. And I think, you know, that's sort of like a metaphor for how we come together to create impact. 
it's like you can have some sort of like small local impact and that's great, but you can achieve much more when you do it together and kind of align on sort of like values and a mission. That's kind of like one piece where I think through the ecosystem of like, what is this piece going to be and how do people interact with it to achieve a certain outcome? But in terms of the interactivity piece, I think I use AR a lot because it's sort of like the most accessible kind of technology, in my opinion, that can add depth and layers of information on top of what you already see with the naked eye. And it parallels in many ways to kind of looking under a microscope. Uh, in many ways, AR can be like your handheld microscope. And who doesn't have a phone? These, I mean, people don't have phones, obviously, but most folks have phones, know how to use them. And, you know, there have been many times where I've just provided phones for folks who don't have them. It's amazing to see their kind of reactions to things appearing out of thin air. It's like magic. And, you know, if I can evoke the sense of wonder, I want to do more of that. Because I think you get such a hit of dopamine when you are delighted by something. If my work can do that, then I'm going to probably inspire you to think more deeply about the sort of context of the work that I've presented. And, you know, maybe I will hopefully have you reinterpret how you kind of walk through the world. So that's why I do this kind of work and what I enjoy most about it. How do you project manage all of that? Oh, I'm, I'm so disorganized. I'm terrible, <laughs> actually. Real talk. Um, <laughs> I bring on partners who are very organized, but I, I think sort of like understanding your strengths and, and knowing sort of like how you work best I, I work best in a chaotic mess because oftentimes I'm taking things that are totally unrelated and mashing them together and creating something new. So that's kind of like, I need a lot of things kind of everywhere to, to be able to do the mashing. But then, you know, having accountability partners tell you, you know, like, let's do a Gantt chart for like how <laughs> we do things. And, you know, it, it helps to... I, I've gotten better over the years because I'm often doing a lot of projects in parallel uh, mm -hmm. and the projects keep on getting bigger. So, and then sort of like the, the funding keeps on getting bigger. So then now I'm more accountable to like the funding partners. So I've gotten more into spreadsheets, gotten more into Google Docs, gotten more into all the organizational tools, but you know, I still, I still feel the struggle. <laughs> Uh, of it. But ultimately, I think this comes from my sort of uh, creative director designer days. I'm just very deadline driven. My husband will tell me it's amazing how if the deadline is tomorrow, you can funnel like three months work into one day. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that is so interesting. <laughs> Do you set deadlines for personal projects? Yes, that's the only way they get done. I, I just know I'm like very deadline driven. But obviously, you know, things come up and you're like, Oh, I was gonna do it by Friday like three weeks later and you're like, but I didn't do it. So <laughs> I feel bad. <laughs> I think th there are pros and cons to being so deadline driven. I think being not on a deadline kind of allows you to experiment more. But at the same time, I think I'm more driven, especially when I'm in sort of like the experimental flow state to finish what I started. So like complete the vision and see how I feel at the end, because I know it's an experiment. I know it's a prototype. So it doesn't have to be perfect per se. It just has to kind of like give me a sense of what if whatever I'm doing here is working. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like enough to move it along. 
obviously when you're balancing personal work and project work, and especially as artists, like we don't know when things are going to come up. We apply for things like a year in advance and it's like, <laughs> oh, I guess I'm doing that now. Okay. <laughs> and I, I feel very grateful that a lot of my projects come like inbound as well, which I know is not the case for a lot of artists, especially artists starting out. So I think for artists starting out, you know, funnel your energy into those personal projects, make them really, really good. And oftentimes people want to see what you can do before they put that trust in you to do something for them. I don't necessarily agree with that way of thinking. I've certainly taken on interns and given people opportunities that, you know, I haven't really seen what I want from them in their portfolio, but I know they can do it because I like the way that they think and how they approach the work and sort of like how thoughtful they are. So I'm, I'm just conscious about giving folks opportunities just for the way they think instead of like what I see in their portfolio. And I hope more people do that, but I know that's sort of like not the norm. Uh, doing personal work can be a way to show that you can actually do what you want to be doing for money for someone else and bigger. Why do you think science and art are often separated or pitted against each other as two different arenas. I think somewhere along the lines of history, they got separated and everyone is so siloed and kind of protective over their fiefdom that sometimes there's a bit of a sort of like a, a war <laughs> between the two in terms of like what's more important, what's more cerebral, what's more this or that. Or I think throughout history, artists have always required patrons of some kind. And usually those patrons are wealthy people. And I think at least fine art in many respects has kind of developed and fomented into a world of its own that is in fact kind of in many ways kept in the dark ages due to this uh, dependency on the wealthy. But this isn't really exactly answer your question. But I, I think at the end of the day, there are too many similarities between the two to kind of totally see them as separate. I find that oftentimes the most brilliant scientists are the most creative ones. They, they may even be artists. And the most thoughtful artists often have sort of like an analytical mind. Mm -hmm. And they do think about science because it's sort of like mixing of materials. How do you create this certain texture? How do you create this finish? That's science. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of just not celebrated in a way. It's like we, in our education, we've just been, we've broken it down into too many disparate parts when in reality in, in the world, everything is sort of like woven together. But for some reason, our education system is broken down to sort of like these silos of like, okay, if you're going to study art, then you go to art school and you do these things. But you know, in art school, you use scientific processes, they're just not sort of like taught as so. And in science, it's sort of like, it's not about, you know, how many things you can memorize. It's about what creative ways can I take from like the many different inspirations that I've come across in peer review to kind of bring them together to see like, oh, maybe there is something I missed that I measured something after something else happened. And like, what does that mean? And I think artists often are working in this way where it's like, oh, I created this texture, but how? And then I'm trying to replicate that. And it's sort of like a series of tests, which is completely scientific. That's essentially the scientific method. This color. <laughs> like, right, exactly. This color. Painting, like, yeah. <laughs> How do you exactly. make it over and over again or make it different or slightly lighter or darker right. or whatever? Or how do I create this visual effect, which is mm -hmm. neuroscience? Um, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, like this moray pattern. Like, why is it kind of trick your eye in this way? Or like if I try to make something bigger, like if I paint it in a bright color, like that's neuroscience, you know? I've always said that I feel like artists are just really good mathematicians and scientists because it's like you innately have this sense 
you just don't know you're doing it. It's like you're doing it in your sleep almost, like in this flow state of like you just see and then and then you do. You, you aren't analyzing all the little bits and pieces because it just comes naturally. And if you were to analyze all those bits and pieces, you would just like see all this math and science kind of flow out. I like that explanation. Thank you. <laughs> Your work deals with the universal, the microscopic, and the personal altogether in different ways. How does your personal identity play into your work? And does that change based on what you're working on or where the project is? That's a great question. I think by now you probably know that all my work is very colorful. And that comes from just growing up in the kitchens of my dad's restaurant. You know, it's like, Thai, Thai food, Thai culture, Thai fashion is just very colorful. There's like greens and golds and reds and blues. And it's just everything is like singing in color. And just being around that made me love and embrace color and the the feeling that it could give others. So I think in many ways, I often bring sort of like that piece of my identity into my work because I know that to help folks accept something that is more complex or difficult to understand, you need something that's easy them to understand are universal. And my dad in, in the restaurant, he basically introduced the greater Atlanta area to Thai food. Like he's responsible for that, which wow. I'm super proud of. But you know, he would do it in a way that was so friendly. And he would make jokes about like the names of dishes so that people would laugh. And <laughs> so his name is Tom. And he would joke around that like, Tom Yum or Tom Yum was like his special, you know, <laughs> soup. And like people would suddenly be like, okay, you know what, Tom, if it's your soup, I will try it, you know? <laughs> so funny. And, and they did, exactly. And they did. And I don't know. I was just, I think like a lot of people are moved by experiences like that. And I try to do the same thing, but for, for science or for, you know, familial memories or for, you know, microscopic worlds, because I think all you need is like something you can hold on to before you jump in. And then once you do, it's sort of like this whole world is opened up to you. And introducing folks to new worlds is is very exciting for me. Do you read science fiction? I do. Yeah. Do you have any favorite um, books or authors? I recently read the Artemis series. Mm -hmm. I'll send it to you later. Put it in the show notes. Yeah. I think recently, though, I've been more drawn to historical fiction. I mean, I guess I don't even know what to call these. I guess... It's like a mix of historical fiction with technology as well, but I'll send you some books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to put them in the show notes. You said introducing people to other worlds and I immediately thought of like the worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin or Octavia Butler and like the, these yes, like imagined absolutely. futures that may or may not be our futures or may or may not be right. like this universe. I love a good dystopian future novel, gotta say. <laughs> even though it's terrifying at the same time. I'm just like, you know what? <sighs> this is like too much of a page turner. It's like 4 a.m. Yeah. I'm still reading. <laughs> I'm in a dystopian short story club with my friends right now, which Ooh. is like the best and worst thing to be doing right now. I mean, we're obviously right now, yeah, because of COVID-19, but it's it's just like so it's too real. Funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> It's like painfully so real, but also very cathartic at the same time. So <laughs> yeah. How do you make money and how has this changed over time? Interesting question. So as you know, I was a creative director, art director, designer. So I kind of lived in that world for a while. And then I became a design strategist. Well, because it made more money and <laughs> I needed money. <laughs> but then I quickly realized that I 
didn't agree with the way the company was, frankly, treating their customers. Hmm. Like they're, what I was seeing out in the world when I was doing my user research was totally incompatible with the way they were approaching their uh, sort of like customer um, persona. So I was very much disappointed in that um, because what I was finding was that, you know, it's like there are all these unbanked folks. There are folks in areas where they can't get to a branch. Um, you know, they are folks, typically folks of color who predominantly are in a sort of like a cash economy. And, you know, mm-hmm. we aren't really helping them with that. In case you can't tell, I worked for a bank. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I quit. <laughs> Mostly because I raised these concerns and they're like, no, we don't care about that. We only care about like a very specific kind of customer. And I was like, that's mm. really terrible. <laughs> don't agree with this bye so I, I was a little bit thrown into the deep end after that because you know I obviously quit on on principle and I didn't have something immediately lined up I thought I did but this foundation that I was trying to get funding from somehow it just didn't work in the end uh, and it was supposed to kind of like set me up and I was like oh god this is terrible but fortunately I was able to pick up some design gigs here and there and I think over the years I built up a bit of a network to kind of do brand work for folks so that's kind of how I started to sort of like a support mm-hmm. myself um, financially and then right but now I make all my money doing art, which I'm really grateful for. And it's a mix of establishing partnerships with nonprofit orgs and also getting commissioned to do work. I work with Amplifier Art a lot. They're a really wonderful organization. I'm sure you've heard of them. I'm working on a campaign for them right now that I can't talk about yet, but I'm really excited for it to come out. Yeah, I think what's kind of tough sometimes is, uh, especially... With getting paid for art, you're often not allowed to share what you're working on until it's kind of ready. And especially sort of like the more established the institution is or the more established the opportunity is, there's sort of like PR constraints where it's like you can't just share uh, when it, like it's your personal work. So I think what we see on, let's say, social media may not actually reflect what's going on in an artist's life and mm-hmm. just remembering that you know whether you have the reaction oh this person's doing so much or this person's not doing anything um just kind of like remembering that is important um because people take all kinds of projects and you know different partners have different guidelines for how things can be shared so just keeping that in mind is it's helpful and and Instagram can be very uplifting and it can also kind of be damaging to self-esteem. So just kind of like <laughs> keeping sort of like a, a good head about that <laughs> is, is always a good practice. It's so weird because it's like what you always, or maybe what I dreamt of being able to do, like seeing the life of this artist doing the type of work I want to do, but knowing that it's, it's not necessarily not true, but it's not necessarily true. And it's definitely not like, it's a, it's a version of real time. Yeah, it's a version yeah. of truth. It's a branded thing to some extent, even if the person's yeah. conscious of it or not. And it's not really what's actually happening that day or that yeah. hour or whatever. And no, it's like, so everybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's important to remember that we all struggle. Uh, in different ways and to different degrees and assuming that the artist in question is like having like the best time of their life may not actually be true and just keeping that in mind when you I guess look at their work is 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 helpful especially if you're 
having a particularly bad time. How do you approach using social media with that perspective? Do you schedule your posts? Do you just post I don't. I'm like it. I'm really not a social media animal at all. I I think it's important uh, as a creative to engage with the outside world, of course. But I'm an introverted person. I I'm not, you know, sharing every little bit of my day, but you know, I I do enjoy it from time to time. I don't have any specific method or schedule that I keep. But I think what I enjoy sharing most is actually work in progress or like experiments, you know, with mixed results, obviously. Uh, I think sometimes with social media, it can be challenging to explore new things because the audience that you've built up is used to seeing a certain kind of content and that's what they like. Kind of not letting social media dictate what you do or why you do it too much is important to kind of keep top of mind because ultimately it's your practice and it's it's sort of like, it's what you want to do. And if this particular audience won't let you grow, maybe they're the wrong one. I think on the flip side of that though, when I'm when I'm doing research and I'm looking up artists, I always look at their website and I check mm-hmm. their social media to just kind of see what they might be working on or thinking about or whatever. Absolutely. But it really really bothers me when an artist doesn't have an updated website and so I just have no idea where their work is. Like You obviously, like you have a great website. You've well-documented your work. I can get a sense of where you've been, where you are, kind of where you're going. It's okay. It could be better, but thank you. (laughs) You have things that are at least up to date with, you know, this past year. You know, like we can see recent work, whereas sometimes I'll see an artist and I, and I really think that, like, I know they can do the project, but then there's, you never want to reach out to an artist and ask them to do something that they're not doing anymore that they don't want to do. Right. Or that might seem very out of bounds to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And there's like a weird, it's hard for me. Cause I believe in a lot of people so much. And I'm like, I know you can do this thing, but I also would never want to ask you to do this thing that is outside of your wheelhouse because that just makes everyone feel uncomfortable, but it's hard to know what someone's doing if they're just, there's no place where they're putting the work that they want to be doing or the work that they are most proud of. And I think that's where Instagram becomes very- I think that's just like 101, right? Yeah, right? I just wish more artists put time into their websites and not just Instagram. (laughs) It's like- No, I agree. I think think a website is definitely, at least from my experience, a website is far more concrete than Instagram. Mm -hmm. At least how I use Instagram is sort of like day to day what I'm working on. Obviously, I'll sort of like bring you along the journey if I'm working on big projects. But there are a lot of things I can't share. Like there's so many exciting things that I can't share at this moment in time. And I would love to, but I'll share them when they launch. So then I just share like experiments and stuff and like new stuff I'm exploring. But your website, yeah, like put your top hits on there. Why not? It's how people find you these days. <laughs> I'm really loving your textile experiments that so you've been cool. I'm glad. Yeah, and I see something. Is what's on the wall behind you something new or? Oh, yeah. I did this for uh, this particular month, kind of like be a little bit about uh, anti-Asian sentiment. I still have to do the last bit on it, which is like projection mapping with a bunch of words that like friends and my community have shared with me about sort of like what they've experienced or sort of like what they want to say. So I still need to do that piece. But yeah, one day I was like, you know what, what if I just put these two things together? Let's see what happens. And I just have random boards and stuff around the house. So I 
I use a lot of recycled materials when I'm experimenting. Yeah, I started down this path of inquiry because I had this commission come from like a big hospitality group and entertainment group. The project has since been pushed back for obvious reasons. But I had pitched these like this big series of self sculptures about membrane proteins and how they can represent mm. archetypes of women, like badass women. So uh, fingers crossed that I actually get to kind of bring this to fruition. But you know, we'll see. I think everything is very much up in the air for, for many folks right now. So mm-hmm. I I empathize. Yeah, I, I loved seeing your soft sculpture work because that's, that's what I've been into lately. And the way in which it was like, not just this, but then this, and then this, and then layers, and then that. And now your projection, projection mapping on it. I'm like, ah, this is, but it, but it's, it's really cool to see. Thank you for sharing the things you are working on, because I think it's exciting for other people to see that whether or not it's like a linear process or whether or not it goes to it, like whatever it may be yeah. or may not be. It's just fun to see other people trying different things and then how far they get to in that new medium is is really interesting. No, I, I think sort of it's great if the work I put up inspires people to experiment too, because I think mm-hmm. we all need more of that. I think sometimes we're stuck in a style because that's what we get paid for and mm-hmm. that's what people know us for doing. It doesn't mean that's it. You know, obviously it takes time and creating work in that different style to kind of have that style take hold for you. But, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like there's no reason why you need to stick to at least in my opinion stick to one thing (laughs) yeah I've been Um, doing more work on paper lately that's awesome I'm not traditionally trained I took my first drawing class this year you know it's just like a I love it from a making background you know and it's it's like oh wait I can actually do this and it's maybe not my it's not as good as I would like it to be yet but it is going somewhere and that's been something fun to I think I think process and progress are both important and I think the more you can fill a toolbox, the mm-hmm. the more you're sort of like able to envision for future projects. Because oftentimes it's, at least for me, I, I will run into, you know, a, a creative problem and I'll say to myself, oh, it would be great if I could do this, but I don't know how. And, you know, it's within a timeline that I couldn't possibly learn, right? But if you take the time to just learn these new technologies or whatnot, then when it's time to actually create something, it can fit within your project scope and sort of like your vision. It's part of the reason why I decided to get into projection mapping. Now I actually have a commission for it, but I just was interested in the technology for its capacity to like almost like... (laughs) It's like a night and day sculpture or a night and day experience in a way because you can create something that like looks beautiful in the daytime and then at night it completely transforms and you're able to kind of like use that as a surface to kind of present more information or more visuals or whatever it is. And I think that's so cool. Like the transformation of something that seems like you couldn't transform before. And I think that just expands the the scope and the impact of like any one singular thing that you can do. And that possibility is super cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. The depth that you can add to a piece right. just becomes like almost infinite. And then with the digital aspect, it's like... Yeah, I mean, I, what's so cool about projection mapping is like, it sort of like molds to whatever surface you wish. Um, and you can control that uh, within the software. Um, and that is really cool. So the the like block sculpture things that I did, I was like, okay, I got to finish this so I can like try the projection mapping on it. It's been difficult in our apartment. <laughs> there isn't that much room, but you know. How do you, so that is, that was the question I actually had for you is how do you teach yourself different things? Hmm. 
It's an interesting question. I think I've always been known for learning things quickly. So I certainly don't take for granted that I just can grasp things without too much of a learning curve. But I think honestly, it comes from this idea that I'll just figure it out where it's like, I'll try different things. And, you know, I'm also a very impatient person. So I think I will sort of like work on it until I get it right. But recently, I've just been more of in the mindset of, you know, it's okay to take your time and not put so much pressure on yourself to complete everything in one day. So I think a, a tiered approach is, is very good for the mind and the soul. Do you Google things or are you watching videos? Or on I just YouTube? read the directions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like this is a terrible answer. I'm so sorry. Um, but I, I think for me, I'm like very vision first where it's like, I'll sketch something out and like, here's what I want it to look like. But I'm also sort of like opinions strongly held, but easily let go. So it's like, I think it'll look this way. I think it'll be cool. But like every step along the process, I'm learning new things about the material or how I attach it to the wall. So I'll have to like adjust. And I, I'm just, I think what helps me learn fast is my adaptability. Cause I know there are so many ways to do any one thing and I'm not tied to one particular way. And I, I lean into my strengths of sort of like, if I'm good at doing this way, then who's to say that I have to do it another way. So I think that helps kind of move things along. And oftentimes I'll just like, let's try to get it working in its sort of like base level first. And then you can sort of like work backwards and make it look better. So I think that way of learning a new thing is helpful of like, okay, what's the like, minimum viable product mm -hmm. <laughs> and like can i get it to work in this like very sometimes sad looking version it's, it's very like design way of thinking of mm -hmm. like okay what's this like base level prototype it looks like shit, but i did it and it sort of like functions and then iterating on like oh okay so i can like shave this bit off or i can you know round this out and that can make it better. That's how I work digitally too. It's like, what are the main shapes? Hmm. And then like I, people always ask me when I illustrate how I do it, like, do I use a pen tool or do I use Procreate? I just like trackpad everything with my finger. Like my trackpad is super sensitive and I just like draw shapes. That's how I do it. Hmm. Um, I think it grew out of this sort of like not wanting to buy equipment when I, <laughs> when I was like really poor and I <laughs> just like didn't want to buy equipment. And then now I'm just used to it. So, right. you know, maybe I will switch over to Procreate and use the Apple Pencil and <laughs> use fancier things, but it's working okay for me right now. <laughs> it seems like just continuing to do and like troubleshooting. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% that's it. I could never be an engineer, I think, because then your whole life is troubleshooting, <laughs> like creative troubleshooting. You have to like really enjoy sort of like picking up, like if you have like a big knot, just like picking the knot apart and like figuring out how everything works. And I'm, I'm too impatient for that. I just get frustrated too quickly. I'm just like, oh, why isn't it working? <laughs> what tips do you have for working with institutions and organizations that aren't used to working with an artist? Hmm. And Interesting question. Are there any specific tips on like pitching a project or if they've come to you, what you might need to explain to them about how you work? Okay. So I think um, first things first, make sure you're aligned on vision and values. So make sure, I think oftentimes we expect others to see what we see in our mind's eye. Mm -hmm. So 
being explicit about what you see in your mind's eye is can be very helpful just so that you know everyone is on the same page because I certainly have done this before where I'm like yeah you know the thing like this you know don't you see it and they're like yeah we see it no they didn't see it did not see it <laughs> I make a lot of decks just to lay out sort of my vision for things, how it's beneficial for them, how it's beneficial for me, what the pricing is, the uh, expected impact. All of these things are important for stakeholders to make their decisions. So having a really good deck can like skip you 10 steps down the line to to getting a partnership. That's such good advice because I feel like that's also some, it's something tangible that can be forwarded. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I feel like sometimes yeah. I get pitches or I don't know, I've talked and it's like an email that has some notes or ideas or like a thing. And no, it's no, like, no. I, I literally cannot share this. No, with it's, anyone. it's gotta be, it's gotta be tight. It's gotta be tight because no one has time to read like 400 pages. No, right. they, they want to know what it is. They want to know why it's good for them. And they want to know what this is going to do for the world. Have you spent time on personal branding? And has that changed mm. since you've kind of focused solely on art as the avenue through which you, you do your projects? It's an interesting question. I think I'm still trying to understand what the answer is to that question. I think I'm grateful that I've been able to produce projects and do them in a way where it's easily shareable. So oftentimes I'll let my work speak for me and that's been very helpful. But I think to a certain extent, my personal brand uh, keeps on expanding in a way. Mm -hmm. So at first it was like, how do I illustrate scientific concepts in a more beautiful and dynamic way? And then it expanded to how do I inspire wonder in more audiences. Then it expanded to how do I amplify the voices of certain communities in a way that inspires wonder to a broader audience. And, you know, I think the through line for all of my projects has always been science, technology, art, women, and whatever permutations that takes, it's, they're broad enough where anything I do I'm pretty confident anything I do will kind of like sit within these realms. I think more and more my work is encompassing uh, identity and belonging and mm -hmm. sort of like the history of places and placemaking. Mm -hmm. So I think just finding a way to tell your story is important. And I've told my story in a lot of different ways. And it's like you watch my first TED talk and then my second one, I'm telling my story in a different way and <laughs> it's fine, you know. And if I do another one, I'll probably tell it in a different way again. But uh, I, I think it's also important to know that whatever piece of press or whatever kind of thing on the internet that you see about an artist is just like a snapshot. Mm -hmm. Of them, I know a lot of people don't think that, but I think it's for important for artists to see others, ar other artists in this way, to know that like that's not all they are. It's just like a snapshot for them. Obviously, like artists run into the issue of like you're branding me by my snapshot by like people who might commission them or like institutions. Mm -hmm. So that's an issue. I think what has been very impactful for me, which has been, I know this is not helpful, but it's been largely out of my control. Like, <laughs> is is getting good press. You know, it's like you can't totally control that, but it's like it's been very helpful for me because in many ways it's sort of like if someone writes a piece about you, it almost like solidifies your voice and your credibility. So it's like if NBC has written about this person, if Forbes and the New York Times, it, it, like I guess they're legit, right? So when you're trying to get funding or partnerships, it, it's helpful just mm -hmm. to kind of be out there. And 
you know, oftentimes this is not within your control. So sort of like a bit of a toss up. But I think a lot of people believe that if your work is good enough, somebody will write about it. Not true. Completely not true. <laughs> you just got to email a bunch of reporters and tell them why your work is awesome and why they should write about you. And, you know, every once in a while, one of them will respond and you can work together on something really cool. But again, the power of the cold email. I think that's such good advice. It's, it's something that I kind of forgot about, honestly, because I, I used to work, I used to do inbound marketing for an education mm-hmm. technology company. And like my job was cold emailing people to get them to write. So then you're like the best at this. Yeah. And then (laughs) when I transitioned to running my own company or focusing on art, I like completely forgot about that as a thing. And now that I'm gotten over the fear of being kind of what you were saying, like just committing to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've, I know how to do this. I've done it for far less important things in the past, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's really good advice. Staying focused, believing in your work too, right? Like, I mean, it can be frustrating to not get responses, but the the response rate is like 20%, you know? So if you send out two emails, obviously, no, it's not (laughs) going to like happen for you, right? You know, but so like send out more and, you know, someone will come back to you and, you know, maybe they say, hey, like you're really cool and we'll keep you in mind for something in the future, but not this time. And that's okay too. At least you made that connection. Yeah. How do you maintain relationships? Do you have a spreadsheet of people you've contacted for different things or people you want to work with again or... Is it just kind of like when you think of someone, you look up who it was and then reach out to them? It's a mix. I think it's pretty organic. I think sometimes, so oftentimes what will happen when your piece gets a lot of traffic is then other outlets who see this one sort of like more premier outlet as being quite important or a trendsetter will reach out to you through your website. That's like, you know, sort of just like kind of going through inbound. But if you're trying to get your thing written about, then what's helpful is to look at reporters who have reported on something similar on the outlet that you want to be featured on, and then just reach out to them and say, hey, I saw your article on this. I thought it was really great. Here's why. Thought you might be interested in writing about my thing, which is similar, but different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good advice. What are the best resources that have helped you along the way? This can be anything. I think a supportive group of friends who believe in you. It's like, it's not any sort of like one thing. Uh, I'm someone who has struggled with mentorship. You know, I've had mentors who, who have turned out to be not good mentors, who have tried to, you know, take credit for the work that I've done or you know, it just hasn't worked out in that way. And I think it could be because my work is very multidisciplinary. And it's hard for folks who kind of work a little more traditionally to advise on, you know, the questions that I am asking about. So I have just like a lot of peer mentorship. uh, And not necessarily artists, in fact, Mm -hmm. Um, I find that, you know, sometimes the most insightful thoughts on problems that I have have come from friends who don't work in the field because they just approach life and working and problems in a different way. And I sort of love that diversity of thinking about a certain problem. And I think that's just been my secret weapon throughout this all. Being able to talk to a close group of friends 
about problems that I'm having in sort of like my sphere of working. Are these friends you've made along the way from different periods of your life? Or are they friends from like high school or college or a specific period? I actually don't have any friends from high school anymore. <laughs> I, I don't really, I have, um, I think two. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just grew up in a very conservative area in the South and we just lead very different lives and that's okay. They're mostly friends from college um, or friends who I've made along the way. It's like when you know they're your person, you know. And yeah, I think sometimes just talking about what you're struggling with and kind of sharing and being vulnerable with people you trust and people that you can do the same for, that sort of like dialogue, Mm -hmm. that give and take can be really beautiful for boosting both your careers. Is there something about what you do that you think has been mythologized or a myth you want to debunk about being an artist who works in very different spaces? I think it's not really a myth, but I think it's helpful for artists to explain in detail with partners they work with their process so that Mm -hmm. everyone understands just how much you put into it. You know, I think artists are often thought of as sort of like you can snap your fingers and it happens, but there's a lot of logistical and strategic thinking that goes into the work we do. And I think it's important sort of like as a group, as as artists to share all the thinking and all the planning and all the strategic sort of like tinkering that we do to create something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more we share that, the more folks understand just how complex and just how kind of process driven and um, sometimes painstaking our work can be. So not really a myth I want to debunk about myself, but more so just like a note of encouragement for, for, you know, myself and other artists Mm -hmm. to share more about the challenges that we face, whether it's you know, how we work with partners or mm-hmm. just how things, how we would like things to be. Honestly, it's sort of like put put your vision of what you want to see out there. And, you know, when folks don't have a roadmap, they can refer to the one that you provided. I worked on a mural project recently where I had submitted sort of like paint colors that I, I wanted. And, you know, the the organization that I was working with had agreed to sort of like procure the paint and it was great. And I, I was like very, very specific. Like I, you know, gave them all the numbers exact mm-hmm. and was like, I want a matte finish and this is what I want. And, you know, they ended up sort of like matching paint by themselves in their in their own way and completely disregarding my sort of like directions and then got me glossy paint and you know sometimes it's it's like sometimes we don't want to raise a fuss about things but putting your foot down about your artistic vision and making sure that artists like yourself and other artists aren't disrespected in this way is important even though it's hard and it you know it's like it might create tensions like sometimes you're just like you know I'll deal with it because I don't want to create a fuss and especially when you're not at home and you travel to do this project you're sort of like alone and there are all these other factors as well but just being sort of like having the courage to put your foot down about what you asked for and what was in the contract and sort of like this is something that's not okay to do and you have to respect artists and their vision I just want to encourage people to do that because sometimes you'll you'll get partners who are inexperienced and you know it's people don't know what they don't know so sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just you know little miscommunication uh there's some difficulties but 
sometimes you work with amazing partners who listen and follow up and, you know, it's just a good working experience, but they all can't be awesome. I think there is a myth among some people or types of organizations or industries even that art is arbitrary or it's like, it's just a, that maybe the artist hasn't thought through certain things. And it's like, obviously, if you're working on a project, you have specifications for a reason. It's not, it's not like it could be any color that's like this or right. like there are reasons why yeah. that, that you might not no, even absolutely. ever explain or maybe shouldn't even need to explain. But yeah, I, I do think that is a myth, like particularly not with everyone for sure, but with some people yeah, in the course. real estate industry where it's like, we just want it to look this way. And like, it just becomes what it is. And the artist just does the thing. And it's like, there's a way in which the art happens and it has to. Right. And, and sometimes we need certain things like surfaces to be prepared or right. X, Y, and Z. Right. And like, those are important for mm-hmm. how our stakeholders want it to look and how long our stakeholders want it to stay up. Cause mm-hmm. if you don't prime a wall, then that's going to come down way sooner. Um, right. or if or there's suddenly like it might be. a lighting fixture in the middle of the wall that you right. know that's, about. That's, that's not great. That has nothing to do with <laughs> the art, but yeah, I, I run into a lot of those kinds of issues where it's like having to educate from the get go. Like, Everything in this realm, <laughs> everything in this well, universe think, space will affect. I mean, that's why experience. what you do is so crucial for projects like this. It's um, it's sort of like being an artist yourself. You can better advocate for artists mm-hmm. um, in these contexts because, yeah, I mean, you can't expect people to know what they don't know. And they're like, it's going to be great. And then they suddenly have, you know, all these sort of like this new information that wasn't right. revealed <laughs> before. And, you know, as an artist, it's sort of like just learn to expect that, yeah. too. They're like, that's just going to happen. But it's better when it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always stuff that, especially with a construction site, like there's always last minute stuff or something. There's always stuff. And that flexibility really helps, like being able to be adaptable. But yeah, the more you know at the get-go and the the earlier that the artist can be involved in the project, the much better things will go in the end. No, I completely (laughs) agree. Yeah, the other... other, Um, mural I did it was they gave me the wrong dimensions and then I was like on the site trying to project the image up and I was like this is wrong so then I was like changing things Mm -hmm. in the design (laughs) yeah but you know sort of like again as you said be adaptable it's still gonna turn out awesome just gotta roll with punches sometimes yeah is there something make sure you get paid yeah (laughs) that's a common theme they pay you don't do free work Uh, yeah don't do free work what, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me everywhere at a long last name. So my website is alonglastname.com. On Instagram, I'm a long last name, Twitter, everything. <laughs> what did you come up with using a long last name? It was actually quite early on. I was working for a startup, which is actually where I met my husband. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I had actually, you know, honestly, I wasn't on social media before that because I was, I'm introverted. I just like, it was not a thing for me. And I had to come up with a, a handle. And I was like, you know what? My last name is truly too long. So <laughs> then I will just be a long last name. I love it. Thank you so much for this interview and for being on the podcast. Of course. It was so delightful to do this. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I love talking to you and learning more about your work. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.